Well, you heard a little bit of my background, and uh, it's been a great, great life since I've trusted Jesus Christ. I got saved when I was 19 years old, off the streets of St. Paul, Minnesota, and nobody was more shocked than I was that he reached down and saved me. And it wasn't but a few years later I was involved with New Tribes Bible Institute and learning about tribal people that are located all over the world that had never, ever heard the gospel or the name of Jesus Christ. And I was so overwhelmed with what God had done in my life and my wife's life that we dedicated ourselves to take the gospel to an unreached people group. And uh, the rest is history. It's uh, been amazing. I can mention to you that... Um, just a couple of years ago when I was working on my D-Men here, uh, a member of our church asked me, how come you haven't been back to Taliabo for so long? It had been 20 years. And uh, I said, well, there's a lot of reasons, but, you know, it's very expensive to go over there. He said, how about if I paid your way? Would you take me with you? And so a couple of years ago, I was able to have a 20-year reunion with the church that God enabled us to plant there. And it just so happened, coincidentally, actually, that at the same week that I was there in the tribe, they were having a convocation of seven churches and training the men in those churches that they had gone on to plant. And so I felt like I should not be able to see that. And uh, I was basically a dish rag the whole time. I just, I wept. And they wept. It was just a great time. So church planning is in my blood. I love church planning. I love the church. I was raised a Roman Catholic. I went to parochial schools, and then I went away from the Lord and from church and everything to do with any authority for about three or four years. And at 19, the Lord saved me. And then when I started to uh, study about the church in the book of Acts, I was just absolutely amazed, and I love the church. And I've dedicated my life to serving the church. Well, I want to look at six areas, and I'm sorry if you were expecting a PowerPoint presentation and a dog and pony show. I don't do those. Uh, it could be my age. I don't know. I, I'm sure they're very helpful in a lot of cases, but this is supposed to be, it's called a workshop, right? A workshop. So you're going to be doing a little bit of work, and I also really enjoy interaction. So if you have a question, please ask the question. Um, it's very important to me that you get your questions answered. And I'm available throughout the rest of the week. I'm around, so, you know, if you don't get your question answered, tag me on the campus here. I want to cover about six areas, if I can, if God gives me the ability. I want to talk about an overview of the present state of church planting and discuss just a little bit about models and methodologies that are out there now. They're very current. Secondly, I'd like to look at establishing a biblical definition of church planting. Uh, what does the Bible have to say about church planting? Thirdly, the character of the church planter. And whenever I use the word or the term church planter, can you just in your mind put a slash after that and say team, church planter, slash team? I often talk uh, in the uh, personal mode of one church planter because I am one. And it's just natural for me to talk about church plantors. But I'm really, really big on teams. Teams are very, very important, and I've never worked without one. So uh, the character of the church planter slash team. Fourthly, affirming the call of a church planter. 
affirming the call of a church planter. How many are pastors in this room that have people that want to plant churches? Okay, so there's some of them. How many are church planters? Yay. Good, you guys are, I expect questions, okay, and challenges. It's okay to challenge them. Um, I can't answer it, but I know somebody that can, so we'll figure it out. So we're going to talk about the importance of the call of a church planter slash team, the importance of commissioning the church planter slash team. This is more for pastors and for the church planter, and also close fellowship with the church planter slash team. I would say for the next seven years, I'd like to see the sending churches be so committed to their church planters, teams, that they work with them closely for seven years. Okay? There's a reason for that. So let me begin by just reading a portion of scripture that I absolutely love. I stopped saying it's my favorite portion of scripture because the people at my church said, you say that every time. So it's from Colossians chapter 1. Verse 24 through 29, the Apostle Paul said, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church I was made a minister, according to the stewardship from God, bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to the saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, with mighty work, uh, which mightily works within me. There is so much in that passage of Scripture that would be weeks of preaching if I were to exegete and exposit it, but it gives you a rounded picture, I think, of a church planter, of which Paul definitely was. And I have this, this deja vu right now as I'm looking at those six areas that I'm going to try to get through and talk to you about. For when I would come home on home leave when I was a missionary over in Indonesia, um, pastors that were supportive of our ministry would uh, have me come to their churches and I'd get together with the pastor before the church and everything. He'd say, okay, Steve, he said, you're on right before the prayer, you know, and, and just let us know what God's been doing. You'll have five minutes. I'm not kidding. And I love pastors, okay? But wow, I was just overseas doing some of the stuff that Paul was talking about there for five years, and I've just come back, and I got five minutes. Well, I really like a lot of the churches would have dinners, you know, and then you could get to talk to people and get to know people. Well, today, it's kind of like that. There's so much I want to share with you. So let's just talk about the present state of church planting models and methodologies. The church, what it is, when it began, how it functions, and our mission are all topics covered under ecclesiology and systematics. 
Ecclesiology is really, really important. And I don't think it gets barely enough information and enough time in many training centers. Scripture teaches us, one theologian said, that the local church is the pillar and support of the truth, 1 Timothy 3.15, and is the only God-appointed institution authorized to carry out his program of witness and service on the earth during this present age. The church is vital. It is what we all should be about. And when the Great Commission was given, we see it carried out throughout the book of Acts, descriptive though it is and not prescriptive, but we see it being carried out in church planting. Churches planting churches. It's the the most effective way to evangelize the world. And so that's what we're talking about here. And in the New Testament doctrine of the church, the representation of, of course, there's two things going on. You've got the the spiritual universal element of the church and the external. You've got the organization and the organism. And today I want to tell you I'm going to be talking about the local, external, and organizational elements of the ecclesia, the New Testament church. Models and methodologies. Here are just a a couple, just a smattering. I want to run right through this because I want to get to the stuff that I really want to talk about, okay? But there's... there's, uh, a real lot of stuff out there in church planning. A number of years ago, probably 25 years ago, everybody was a tent maker. Do you remember that? Okay. The church goes through these these things. And the only one that stays solid is the one that's with the word of God. This church here has maintained that. Just doesn't get picked up by fads. Nowadays, everybody is a church planner. And so consequently, there's all sorts of strategies and methodologies. And um, here's a couple of them. There's the launch large model. There's the missional incarnational model. Okay? There's the organic or house church model. And just because we have time limits here, there's the satellite campus church model. These are all very, very big. Some are, some are big in size, some are small in size, but these are really hot topics nowadays. Each model is identified by the methodologies used to launch the church and plant the church and the principles that guide it in its mission. And although some would say, and they have, that these are God-given guides to assist us in our church planting endeavors, I think that we can lose the forest for the trees, especially among young church planters that maybe aren't as well-read as they ought to be in the area that they're saying to be involved with, because what happens is these models, which are not bad in themselves, really, there are a lot of good elements within each of those models that I mentioned, but there are a lot of bad ones too. And the biggest one is that it, it te- they all tend towards pragmatics, what works, what really works. And so we've kind of sacrificed the word of God and the biblical models uh, in the process. And so younger men that are going out and wanting to do church planning and adopt one of these these models, um, they get swallowed up by the methodology and they lose sight of the biblical ecclesiology that they touched on when they were in seminary as they pursue one model or another. Actually, the culture, the context that they're in swallows them up. And it's like this gets us set aside. This is down underneath the models and the methods that are being taught out there. 
And that can never be. The word must be supreme at all times. This comes about as a church planter team chooses a model that they've determined, maybe even with prayer, maybe even with a group of people around them praying, what model should we use? We want to plant a church. God's kingdom's got to continue on. We've got to help. And so they, they pray about it, and they choose a model that they've determined through prayer that best suits their demographic, that best suits their gift sets, that best suits their preferences. Oh, I, I don't, I don't want to. I don't want to plant church out in the rural area. I want to be out in the suburbs. Well, I don't want to go to the inner city. I want to be out in the suburbs. Really, who's driving the show here? Who's the driver in this this option here? The church planner. And right there, you're off on the bad footing immediate because you are the one that is making these choices. I'll never forget when I was going to plant this church in St. Paul um, I was connected with a church, a large church. I'm not going to tell you who or what or where or when, but the people in that church, in the church planting division, kept asking me, what's your demographic? What's your demographic, Steve? You've got to have a demographic. I said, well, are you going to go to young people? Uh, you're older, you know, <laughs> saints. <laughs> so, you know, maybe that's out. Are, are you going to go for, for like, you know, a uh, 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 multicultural church? or What, what are you going to do? What's your, what's your demographic? Are you going to go out in the suburbs? or What are you going to do? Because it really makes a difference for the way that you plant. And I said, Here, here's my demographic, okay? The lost and the found. That's my demographic. And I'm going to minister to both. And that's my demographic. Well, young or old? Yes. <laughs> White, black, yellow, red, blue? Yes whoever, and I'm just going to preach God's word, the gospel, and teach those people that God brings to us and that we save through his gospel, and I'm just going to watch the spirit of God raise up a church in St. Paul, which is frightfully destitute of churches. We have probably the largest contingent of, of uh, megachurches per capita in the United States circling the Twin Cities, Minneapolis and St. Paul. But in the city of St. Paul, hard-pressed. Hard-pressed to find a sound church. So, let me say that choosing a model like that, you'd have a hard time finding that in the New Testament. And I challenge anybody here to try and help me to see that where Timothy chose a model or Titus chose a model or even Paul chose a model doesn't mean that he didn't use different methodologies. The message always remained static, the same. The gospel message remains the same. And in different contexts, and yes, I said that word, context. I'm glad there's some church planters here because it'll help protect me from the rest of you guys. Okay? I do believe in contextualization, and so do you. It's just that the negative, poor representation of contextualization and misuse of contextualization has really ruined that word. But... You know, what happens is that in the process of trying on these different methods, we really start off on the wrong foot. I remember one megachurch pastor in Minnesota mentioned this in a chapel. He said, I'm bored. Anyone can do a megachurch. You just have to follow certain steps and, boop, you got a megachurch. 
And I thought, oh, where am I? Remember now, I was 17 years in Indonesia with an unreached people group, and I had like, this was like a church from Acts, okay? It was the first time they ever heard the gospel. And then when we got the church together, because they were semi-nomadic people, we got them together. They wanted to get together into a village, and, and so then we had Geneva. <laughs> we really did. It was just like all new territory. And they always just came up to the missionaries and, missionaries and they said, what does God's word say about this? What does God's word say about this? It was a beautiful thing, but that's not the way it is today, it seems. Well, the seeker-sensitive church is pretty passe now. It's a craze that still hasn't run its course completely, but many say that it's seen its day. It's unsustainable. The, the large, large campuses and the millions and millions of dollars it takes to sustain them, uh, they're, they're beginning to uh, go by the wayside. No grandchildren. I remember reading a book in the 80s saying these churches, these seeker-friendly churches will have no grandchildren. And the guy was pretty, pretty sharp, wasn't he? Well, the large church launch, based on Acts 2, 3,000 people. You get a core team together from the sending church, which is large, and you start with a moderate staff, gather a larger core group of worshipers together, 30, 60, maybe 100, and therefore begin with the core group from the sending church in addition to some others, and with a small staff, maybe pastor, worship leader, and a secretary. I'd die and gone to heaven if I had a pastor, uh, a secretary, and a worship leader. And I mean, we're pushing nine years now, and I just got a secretary for eight hours a week, and we have had a couple of worship leaders, but part-time, okay? But these churches, that's, that's the way they do it, large launch. They do a couple preview services advertised in the community, and they plan a large launch date. Often the large launch date will be through specific series that resonates with the community, like relationships or parenting or managing time or you know, what the Bible has to say about sex or, you know, something, something to kind of get the people in, right? Such launches have been able to rocket past the typical size barriers of 100 people and 200 people. They get up to like 1,500 people the first year. Many of them are just transference. Very, very little is actually evangelism. Promoters of such a model argue that in the West, we're an event-based church, and so they use events. And they can point to numerous numerical success stories and almost all in suburban, middle to upper class, economically successful people. So the model is widely promoted and used, but you need a boatload of money to do a large church launch. That's one of the drawbacks to it. Now, the good thing about these is that they are extending out away from the sending church. So there is a church Christian presence, and hopefully they're preaching the gospel, but they are expanding out. So that, you know, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater, but at the same time, there are some real terrible situations that develop in these situations as well. How about the missional incarnational model taken from John 1.14? The movement really got footing uh, in the 90s and focused on the church as a mission, good stuff, and not the church having missions programs as an add-on. The church itself is a mission. And uh, the focus is more on community engagement, getting down 
on the level with the people that you're actually ministering to, and on many levels, uh, the least being social justice issues. And you can see where we're going here. The emergent church would fit into this. Uh, an example might be the way Mark Driscoll once put it, churches should help new believers remain within their tribes. It's a little bit of a stealing from the insider movement of missiology. Uh, you you got to help them remain in their tribes, whether the tribe is punk rock or a ghetto block or yuppie stock, or just so long as they don't sin. <laughs> okay, okay, that's the methodology. And we know how that worked, don't we? Many say that they're merely emulating what cross-cultural missionaries do when they enter a foreign culture. Some drawbacks would be the quite real, real problem of being absorbed into the culture and allowing the culture to trump the truth of God's word, and that happens more than these churches would like to admit. Integration, engagement, and service take a higher place than the proclamation of the gospel. They, they, they want to even bring people into the church before they're believers, make them feel a part of the community before they proclaim the gospel. Not a good thing. Organic house churches, a little bit smaller model here, can be compared to anything organic today. It doesn't have the additives, the unnatural ingredients uh, that are not welcome. Now, I want to tell you something, okay? I was a, a church planter in a foreign situation, and North American Christianity is a real challenge for my own heart, <laughs> okay? I am one. I'm a North American, but I think I was over there too long, and I was able to see something take place amongst a, a group of people that were shamanistic animists and see the transformation of God and them always coming to the missionaries going, what does God's word say about this? What does God's word say about this? And then I come back to the United States, and I'm dealing with churches, and I have to be careful here because this is a culture too. This is a culture too. It needs to be reached. It needs to be transformed. But my wife and I fondly refer to many Christians in this climate as walkaway Christians. They just get up and walk away. You say something from the pulpit they don't understand. They don't come and ask you what you meant. You say something that them come and talk to you about it. You just don't see them anymore. And then you follow up with them. Oh, yeah, yeah, we're just going to a place that's closer to our church. And it's so foreign. It's so foreign to this. But it is a culture that needs to be reached. Well, this organic house church model is kind of an answer to that. They really want to just get closer, be smaller, be more relational. And I mean, that's, that's all good, I guess. Acts 2.32 and following is their mandate used as a biblical justification for these models. Now, the problem is, is that due to the fact that they've kind of jettisoned the North American church model and the structures and everything, they tend to be less structured. They tend to have unqualified people leading because they put people in leadership positions too quickly, and they don't really use the biblical qualifications. And so consequently, you have that difficulty. And often, many of these house churches uh, devolve into nothing more than a glorified Bible study. Uh, when they don't practice the ordinances, many. And so, consequently, you have that, that problem. And then satellite campuses. These really should be considered church extensions, due, not church plants, due to the relationship with the main campus. These are just literally an extension, 
And again, the good thing is, is that you have something going geographically away from the mother church or the, the sending church, but usually they're centered around a personality, and that personality is the main teaching preacher. And in one, no, not one, two, three, maybe four large churches in Minnesota that I know of that have this model, they don't even have campus pastors. Well, they have a campus pastor, but he's not a preaching or a shepherding pastor. Most of the time, it's the other guy that's up front, which is the worship leader, and they make him the campus pastor, okay? So there's really just one pastor, and he is piped into uh, these various satellites. And then he makes his way around to these satellites, kind of like a circuit preacher back in the day. Again, it's expanding out. More people are hearing the word of God, and depending on their theology, you know, um, I don't want to be judgmental, but I think that there's a better way. I know of one multi-site church that, yeah, when they lose their personality, they lose the church. And so that's a very dangerous way to go about it. So those are just some of the models that are out there, okay? Um, how about a biblical definition of church planting and the church? Now, you know, I'm assuming most of you are biblically taught. Uh, Forgive me if I'm, that's a bad assumption, but I'm not going to get into ecclesiology and the Greek and all this stuff and, and get you background. I'm presupposing you guys understand a lot of this um, in the background of the word ecclesia in the New Testament, and you've read books on the subject and so forth. But here's a couple of definitions from some men that I think uh, have some things to say to us. David Hesselgrave, when we use the word church, lowercase, uh, as opposed to church with the uppercase, which would be the universal church, the lowercase, the local church, we refer to any duly constituted local body of Christians, believers, who corporately attempt to worship, witness, and serve in accordance with the word of God. It, it, it's good. It's simple. J.D. Payne, anybody heard of J.D. Payne? He's got a pretty big book out on church planting principles, and I've been trying to upgrade my library into the 20th century. Most of my guys are older, you know, and I'm thinking, surely there's got to be something out here. So I got J.D. Payne's book. Um, I think he teaches down at Southern. He's, he's got a lot of good stuff. But he's, what he's done is he's collated all the stuff from my library and all those older works, Rollin Allen and, and uh, some, of the, some of the older guys, well, Hesselgrave and some of these men. But he's done it in a great way, and it's a great, it's a great uh, tome if you want to get his, his work. J.D. Payne. He says, biblical church planting follows the way modeled by Jesus and imitated by the apostolic church for global disciple making. It's a methodology and a strategy for bringing in the harvest, raising up leaders from the harvest, and sending leaders to work in the harvest fields. It is evangelism resulting in congregationalizing. I like that. Roland McCune wrote a systematic theology, and he said, scripture teaches that the local church is a pillar in support of the truth and is the only God-appointed institution authorized to carry out his program of witness and service on earth during the present age. I'd like to say that I think the church and church planting is the process by which the Holy Spirit gathers together a community of believers through evangelistic efforts who then begin to actively worship and serve the Lord that saved them. 
And then as they mature and become established in the word, servant leaders are recognized and appointed based on lives that characterize the standards set forth in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. Function before form. Function before a title is ever given. A church that has been planted when the congregation of redeemed sinners are meeting regularly for worship, recognize their individual responsibilities to serve the Lord, and are overseen by biblically qualified leaders and observe the ordinances of the church. The worship service of the church is overseen by the men appointed and commended to the Lord as her servant leaders. That's what a church is. Now, I digress for just a minute. That's called a traditional model by the church planning gurus that are out there now. That's, that's a traditional model. really doesn't work very well anymore. Now, nah, I think that's the biblical model. We have to have a full picture of the endeavor to be undertaken before we begin. People, the church planters need to know what a church is before they ever go out to plant one. Hesselgrave provided a good structural diagram for us or outline for us, and many of you who've done your reading know about it. It's called the Pauline Cycle. I think it's very biblical. He starts with, he's got 10 sections here, but he starts with the church planter is commissioned, and he, of course, takes it from Acts 13 and from Antioch, and Acts 15, where Paul and Barnabas were, you know, sent out. And then he says, secondly, the audience is contacted. Now, I just want to say this. 1979, we were commissioned. The audience contacted. In 1983 through 1987, we contacted a group of people. The gospel communicated. In 1987, after studying their language and their culture for four years, we communicated the gospel with those people. Yeah, number four, the hearers are converted. Yep. They got converted. We threw the bread out in the water and some came back. And a church was born. And then number five, the believers are congregated. And so those that believed then, we began meeting together consistently and continued to pour the word of God into their lives. Six, their faith was confirmed. Seventh, the leaders were consecrated. Now this took place the hearers converted, the believers congregated, and faith confirmed over a seven-year period from 1988 to 1995 with the Taliabo. Seven years we taught them. We taught them three, four times a week, groups of 100. Uh, after they started getting a little bit of understanding under their belt, and they started to be able to read a little bit of their language, we used a lot of these tape talk things because they couldn't read very well, so they just they would memorize the scripture, and then they'd recite it, and then they'd use it instead of reading it, because they read it very halting. But they started having home Bible studies on Sunday afternoons. They just decided to have home Bible studies, and they just kind of sprung up. And over a period of seven years, we saw leaders begin to surface through function. We found that when men were sick or women were sick, we'd get to the house, and there'd already be three, four, five men praying with them. If somebody was involved in adultery, okay, and it became known, we'd get to the house and we'd see two or three, and they happened to be the same guys. And they're just ministering to them, telling them, God's word says you shouldn't be doing that. Why would you ever do that? And they'd be, okay. 
We had a great big Christmas get-together and killed 30 pigs and just had a ball, you know. But before we did that, some of the men said, you know, some of our people don't have a lot of food, so why don't we ring the church bell, which is an old bomb from World War II. Why don't we ring the church bell and call all the people that have extra and they can bring it into the church building and they can set the extra food and rice and cooking oil around the side of the church and then we'll let them go and we'll organize it all out and then we'll kind of ring the bell again in two hours and we'll let the people that have a need come and get it. <laughs> well, there were our deacons. I mean, it just happened. Magic. No, biblical. And the power of the Spirit of God, right? And so, as we continued to train and teach them for those seven years, we saw leaders develop. And so we consecrated them in 1995. And then the believers were commended. We commended them to the Word of God and His work of grace in their lives. And we left. We left. I left there and came here to Los Angeles, another jungle, from one jungle to another. And talk about full circle, people. The elders of Taliabo made my wife and I kneel down and split bamboo. I remember this to this day because I think I still hurt. They prayed so long, but they all laid hands on us, and they sent us off to Grace Community Church. <laughs> Amazing stuff, what God can do in the lives of people that allow the Word of God to transform them and the relationship continued, and it has continued. I still am in touch with those people. I haven't gone there that much, but I did have another partner that was a linguist and language fellow that lived in Indonesia longer. I was here in L.A., and uh, he would make trips back in because he was still translating. And we've kept that relationship so that when I went back there a couple years ago, they all knew me. Many of them have transferred to heaven, but uh, there are still a lot there that remembered. And so finally, sending churches convened, and I got to see that. And we, there hasn't been a missionary on site since 1995. Who taught them to convene the churches? The Spirit of God taught them to convene the churches. And they did. And they began to train the new leaders coming up in those churches to ordain them to the work of the ministry. Now I want to talk about the character of the church planter slash team. This is so important. The task of church planting is an intense and demanding ministry endeavor. A confirmed calling, affirmed commissioning, and clear understanding of the mission and vision of this endeavor will take, uh, uh, that it takes is non-negotiable. And I think that a lot of failure is because these pieces are not in place. Um, I remember, and I just talked to a man today, honestly, that said, my church, I want to go and plant a church in an unreached people group. I think I know the mission that I'd, I'd like to go to uh, and go with. He's trained here through the TMS uh, group. And he said, but my, my, my church really doesn't know how to commission me, doesn't know how to really get behind me and everything. And I think, you know, that's something where those of us that do need to come alongside these churches and help them to realize how important it is. Uh, number one, to assess the church planner. Is he ready to be sent out to plant a church like that and do some of that work. But there, there are certain qualifications that I think that separate a church planter from a pastor. 
Now, pastors, don't get mad at me. It's just different. It's not right or wrong. It's just different. And I, 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 would, I would say this very honestly to you. I think some pastors would be extremely frustrated, and I'll lapse into my hippie days, freaked out if they had to do church planting. They're not cut out for it. And I know, because I am one, that a church planter, just being a pastor, and I'd say just advisedly, but just being a church planter in an established church where he's shepherding a flock that's already established and everything, church planters just like chomping all the time, chomping all the time. My elders are constantly saying, Steve, come back, come back, come back. Steve, come, come, come back. Okay. That's why I love LifeGate because I still get my finger in with churches that are being planted and new works that are being started and helping out. So, the thing is, here's some of the qualifications in areas of spiritual qualifications, social qualifications, personal qualifications. Because time is at a limit here, I'm going to go through these, and then I'm going to open it up for some questions. But the truth of the matter is, I think they have these taped, so I want to get these out there. Spiritual qualifications, obviously converted. That is a given, right? Paul's testimony in Acts 26, 12 through 20. Elder qualified, spiritually mature men, you should be ready to have these men on your staff without a hesitation on your pastoral staff. 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1. Faithful in ministry, they're hard workers because the working of a church plant takes an inordinate amount of work. You're starting from scratch, 1 Corinthians 4, 2. Cultivated personal holiness, 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16. An evangelist, get this, with fruit. <laughs> Not just that his heart burns for evangelism and he loves the gospel. Has he preached the gospel to people and have people become converted? Okay, Because that's going to be his main thrust when he goes out. So he needs to be evangelistic with fruit. 1 Timothy 4.12 and Ephesians 4.11. One who disciples others with fruit. Has he taken somebody along the road and walked with them, and have they grown through that and been transformed by his ministry? One who has the support of his spouse and family, 1 Timothy 3, 4, and 5, exercises the gift of faith. And somebody said, well, what's the gift of faith? Well, the gift of faith is found in 1 Corinthians 12, 9, and my understanding of the gift of faith, everybody has faith, but the gift of faith is that evidence within the heart that allows a man to see beyond what others around them are seeing and not only sees it, but moves towards it and brings people along with them because they believe God wants to do this thing. And that, that, is, that is an important feature in a qualification for a church planter and a prayer warrior, obviously, with fruit. Has he a prayer list? Has he been praying through it? Can he show you God's answers to his prayers? Which would go to personal holiness as well, right? Social qualifications. He needs to be friendly and not a jerk. Do you know there are there are Christians that are they say that they're 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 not um, charismatic, or they're not um, type A personalities, or they're not gregarious. They're kind of quiet and shy, hogwash. Well, 
I guess there are, and they can be, I suppose, but I can't find that in Scripture. We're supposed to greet everyone and greet strangers and be outgoing, all of us. And a church planter must be friendly with those within and without. They need to be a leader that leads fruit. Are there people that follow them? They need to be lover of people, all kinds of people, people, not a demographic, people, lost souls. They need to love people, love them enough to give their lives for them. They need to be unafraid of strangers. They need to be able to go up to a stranger and just begin to talk to them. Not everybody's going to be super gifted at this, but you just can't be afraid of strangers if you're going to be a church planter. Personal qualifications, a little bit different than the social qualifications. They need to be innovators. They need to be able to begin things well and not fearful of new ventures. They need to be able to step out into the great unknown, knowing that that solid rock, Christ, is going to be right at their foot need to be strategic thinkers. They can look ahead and see the uh, pluses and the minuses in a plan. They need to be self-starters because nobody's looking out over their shoulder. The one man that I talked to recently wants to go to an unreached people group. Well, you know, even with a supporting church, you're not going to be looking over his shoulder. You can't. He's too far away. And so he's got to be able to keep himself geared up and doing what he's been called to do. Self-discipline, stick to itiveness. Flexible, not rigid. Rolling with new, challenging situations. I'll give you one example. Meeting places. Here in the United States, church plants that aren't large church plants, okay? You become a nomad because your church building that you meet in for four hours a week that you get charged so much money for dries up on you, and you've got to find another one. And the first time's okay because you only have 50 people. The second time's a little bit more scary because you've got 150 people. The third time, you've got 200 people, and you're thinking, oh, Lord, help me. Help me, Lord. Okay? You can't be completely discombobulated when God changes up things on you. You need to be flexible. Patient, because they have the big picture in mind so the little things are less troublesome. Able to endure hardship and suffering. Huge. Huge. Now, I know the pastorate brings its hardship and suffering with it. Church planting, maybe even more so. It's hard when you're planting a church and you have 50 people and 25 leave. And go to the big church. Because you want the kids to have the programs that the big church has. And they were good people too. And you love them. And they still love you. But they got to go because of their kids. I'll tell you, lots of tears shed but you've got to be willing to continue to press on and a good reputation within and without. Now, just finally, and I'm, I'm done here, do you have any questions? You can talk to me afterwards. There's still some time, but any thoughts that you want to say? You church planters, resonate at all with you? or wanna Yes, sir.
Well, I think in the affirmation process, okay, um, of a church planter who is going to be going out and doing evangelism, you want someone that has at least tested their abilities to evangelize. We know that it's God that gives the fruit. I, I'm not saying it's an individual's, you know, um, abilities. But if God's hand is upon the man as he endeavors in evangelism, um, I think that, that that's something that you need to be affirming of. So it's more of an assessment time and so forth. And I'm not talking about Billy Graham-ish, you know, where he's got thousands of people following him. So, Yes, sir? Yes, yes, Discovering Church Planning. He's got another one called Apostolic Church Planning, but you don't want to read that because that's way too convicting. Don't, don't get it. No, don't get it. Because he says our churches really aren't church plants because they're just church nomads going from one church to the other to the next big thing. They're not being developed through evangelism. It just convicted me to death. I just, <laughs> but what do you do? You can't say no. We only have new converts in our church. Uh, just a second. Uh, I was wondering, unreached people group, when there's no Christian in culture, mm-hmm. um, and you, did you go as a pioneer, like just by yourself, or was it with a little team? We had a team. We had three families. Mm-hmm. One was a teaching uh, spiritual development guy. The other guy was a uh, linguist and language guy. And the third guy was more base operations and supply guy. And then did you like develop a core group of people, or did whoever responded to we kept meeting regularly so that yeah, we went in, we went in um, and asked permission to come in because we had the most important message in the world from them about eternal life, which their whole culture was looking for. We didn't know. <laughs> and uh, it's all on a video called the Taliabo story. I think it's on YouTube. You can even see it on YouTube. So it tells that whole story. And then we just lived with them for four years. So. Okay, Dr. Ronetti. We want to thank him. He's reminded us to be biblical, not be strategists, first off, and to remember what the church is and then be called to what the church planter must be. So let's thank again Dr. Stephen Thank Renetti. you.